Well, join me in Philippians chapter one. We're doing a sermon series called Beloved Stand Firm. You are loved by God. And with all of the stuff taking place in the world and in our individual lives, all the unique challenges, trials, and tribulations, God calls us to stand firm. So we're gonna spend some time looking at verses 18 through 30 today. This week, I cut down about a 50-foot, 50-year-old maple tree in my backyard. It sort of started dying a couple years ago and finally lost its final leaves this spring, so I wanted to wait till the weddings that were taking place at our property were done, so we got those out of the way. Our kids are married off, and it was time for this big old tree to come down. And um, I, you know, I cut it down in a, in a certain respect happily because I get some good firewood out of it. But there's also something that just feels a little wrong or off when you cut down something that's been there for, for a couple generations at least. And I was just thinking about this, this tree. Uh, this tree, probably planted long before I was born, has been a blessing to, to, to birds. I'm sure many generations of birds made their nests in that tree. It provided shade for our family and, and previous folks that have lived on our property. And it was visually appealing at one point. In fact, even when it was dead, it was kind of a cool looking tree. I have no idea who planted that tree 50 or 60 years ago. And it would take years and years and years for a new tree to reach that same height. But I do plan on planting one or two trees that I started this spring from seed in its spot and we'll, we'll see how they do. Well, as with trees, people, us, we come and we go. And in our lives, as with trees, we will bless other people. We will accommodate one another's needs. But there will come a day when this life will end and we will no longer be here. Now, we won't be cut down, hopefully, but we will be boxed up and we will be buried. And that will be the end of it, right? No, because we believe in something called resurrection hope. God will, at some point in the future, resurrect our bodies. We will be reunited with our spirits and we will live with the Lord forevermore. Nevertheless, in this life, we will bless others, I hope. But the difference between trees and people is that while trees provide mere temporal blessings, we have the opportunity to provide eternal blessings to others. In other words, the way that we live our lives in this life will not only bless those around us in the here and now, but your values, your commitment to Christ, your proclamation of the gospel. Think about this for a moment. It's a little, it's fascinating, but it's also a little scary. Unless Jesus Christ comes back, your witness, your testimony, your ministry could still be impacting people a thousand years from now. Just as we've been impacted by the lives of those that, were, that lived centuries and centuries and centuries before us. So our Long after our names are forgotten, the way that we've lived our lives can bless people for generations to come. So we're here for more reasons than just to make more humans. We're here for more reasons than just to protect others and provide a laugh here and there. 
We are here to introduce people to the one that created us, that loves us, that came into this world to save us. We're here to proclaim his gospel. We're here to remind people why they exist and how they can be saved and find new hope and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you considered recently how eternally impactful your life can and should be? You thought about that much? As you go about the daily rhythms and routines of life, and there's a lot to do. You got to buy groceries. You got to cut the grass. You got to cut down dead trees. Have you considered how your life can impact others eternally? Paul understood this, the famous apostle Paul, a man of faith. We look to him as a great mentor and spiritual example. But we actually have more resources than Paul do. Paul, Paul did. We have a completed canon of scripture. We now have 2,000 years of church history behind us. We have all sorts of resources and opportunities and technology that can help us to be even more impactful than a great man like Paul. But one thing we can learn from Paul is he got his priorities straight. Not in the early first part of his life, but in the second part. He got his priorities straight. Paul understood his reason for living. Do you understand your reason for living? Is it just to go to work this week and throw a few more bucks in the bank account? Do you understand your reason for living? In Philippians chapter one, we have this great statement given to us in verse 18 that sort of helps to refocus us all as Christians on our purpose. As Paul discusses his suffering and how the Lord was working in his life in spite of his suffering, here's what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Now in this context, we discussed this last Sunday. Paul was a little bit concerned that some preachers aren't properly motivated. And that was a concern and he addresses that and he wants people to be properly motivated. But then he goes on to say, well, basically, even if they aren't properly motivated, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, ultimately that's what matters the most. And he sort of goes circles back to that in verse 18. And it it demonstrates for us that Paul refused to get sidetracked or distracted by the weaknesses in the church, the weaknesses in culture, the circumstances that he found himself in. He happened to have written this letter from a prison cell. At the end of the day, Paul was laser focused on what mattered the most, and that was the proclamation of Jesus' gospel. That's what he lived for. That's why he got out of bed in the morning. That's why he built relationships. That's why he preached And that was also his source of hope. Is it yours? Do you understand that this is why you're here as well? No matter what, Jesus. This passage teaches us that we live to proclaim Christ. And you know what? We live to proclaim Christ even in suffering. We're going through through some things as a church, as a culture, as a nation, and as a world. And we are very concerned 
at the spiritual battles that are taking place around us. We're concerned at the compromise that we have seen in church communities, in seminaries and Bible colleges, and in our nation as a whole. But there's hope. All of these spiritual battles, and they are that ultimately spiritual battles, serve to prepare us for victory in Jesus. And so we will and can and should persevere right till the end. So if we are suffering in this life for Christ, folks, get this, we are suffering for his imminent win, his imminent victory. Philippians chapter one, verses 18 through 30 as a whole helps us to see that even in our suffering, our suffering positions us for God's purposes. Even in our suffering, our suffering positions us for God's purposes to be fulfilled through his faithful people. Let's look a little bit further into the text. There's kind of two main points I'd like to preach on today. The one relates to assurance. And I think we see that in verses 18, the second part of verse 18 through 26, that our assurance can actually grow through, su- through suffering. So this is gonna be a good news message for you. Our assurance grows through suffering. And the second part of the, the passage is gonna teach us how we should act and react to the challenges of our world. But let's first of all, kind of do the internal part. Then we'll do the external part. This is all about the internal. This is about your heart, your attitude, your perspective on suffering. And we can learn a lot from Paul as he shares this very encouraging message to the early church. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Again, keep in mind, he wasn't staring down the, bail, the, the barrel of a potential prison sentence. He was already in prison. So this wasn't theoretical. This was actual suffering he was experiencing. This wasn't a, well, what if the world falls apart? It had fallen apart essentially for him. But he still says, yes, and I will rejoice as should we. For I know that through your prayers, speaking to the church, and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not, that I will, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, I like the, the words of emphasis that Paul adds, not just courage, but full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. And then this famous declaration, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, either way I win. Either way I win because Christ won. And then verse 22 says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. Now this Next statement is one we're going to spend a fair bit of time on this morning because I know that this is a tension in the life of every faithful Christian in this room today. I know it because I live in your world as well. Here's what he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue to be with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory 
in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul gives us in this incredible passage of scripture, a godly perspective on suffering, a godly perspective on the necessity of suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ is through spiritual eyes, one of the most incredible blessings you can ever receive. Humanly, that doesn't make sense, does it? But through the eyes of faith, suffering for Christ is one of the most incredible blessings you can receive and participate in. Why? Well, you get to witness the power of prayer. Did you see that in verse 19? Paul teaches us that we can be confident in the effectiveness of prayer for deliverance. In the short term or the long term, God does listen and God does respond to the prayers of his people. So should we protest? Yes. Should we petition? Yes. But we should also pray. Because God does that which we are incompetent and incapable of doing. So we have hope because we have the gift of prayer at our disposal. And throughout history, history kind of goes like this. There's, there's ups and downs, there's highs and lows. It's cyclical. There's nasty things that happen and then there's recovery, reformation and restoration. Spiritual reformation without question is always tied to the prayers of God's people. And then guess what? When God revives or restores or reforms, he gets the glory, we don't. So we need to be a people of prayer. Secondly, he's confident in the help of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the spirit of Jesus Christ. So when people are struggling with what they see around them and they're thinking, man, am I I alone? No, you're not alone. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's an incredible blessing. So when I'm not around and your family's not around or maybe your friends have abandoned you and you're just sort of by yourself, you're never really by yourself because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can encourage you and teach you truth and bless you and nourish you. So you're like, why do I feel so peaceful and strangely encouraged right now when things around me are kind of lousy because you have the Holy Spirit and he's operative in your life. Third, we have the expectation that God will grant us courage and boldness. We're taught that in verse 20 of this text. And Paul's pretty confident that this is something that he has and will continue to have. He uses the word eager, eager expectation. Uh, He uses the word full, so not just courage, but full courage. He's confident that the church of Jesus Christ, as they submit themselves to the Lord, will be courageous, bold, brave for Christ. We have that. I've seen this grow in many of your lives this year. The opposite is to be ashamed. What what does that mean? What, What does it mean to be ashamed? Well, it's the opposite of honoring Christ with your life. But when you honor Christ with your life, you're not ashamed, you're not fearful, you're bold, you're courageous. The world might misinterpret that as arrogance or pride, but no, it's not sourced in self. It's sourced in God working in your life, giving you this gift of courage, of faith. Now that is possible if Paul's motto is your motto. What's Paul's motto? Verse 21, he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul wasn't concerned about death and he didn't poo-poo living. It's like, it doesn't really matter. 
If I'm living, it's for Christ. If I'm dead, it's for Christ. Oh, well. What a a freeing, beautiful, unencumbered way to live your life. You don't put yourself on the train tracks and unnecessarily expose yourself to death. But at the end of the day, whether you are dead or alive, folks, it doesn't really matter. If you're in Christ, he's with you here, he's with you there. You're living now, you live eternally. Doesn't really matter. This is not a hope that the world has. This is why everyone is living their lives in abject terror of death. People have literally lost their minds. We don't deny there's a virus. We don't deny there's a virus that has killed a lot of people. None of us want it. But we're not going to shut our lives down, shut our churches down, shut our families down, shut our businesses down because we're terrified of dying. We're all going to die one day anyway. And the Lord is sovereign over the timing of our death. We have hope that God has put us here for a reason. Obviously, we exercise common sense to mitigate against unnecessary premature death. But at the end of the day, God is God. And whether we live or we die, it's for Christ. Now, this, this fourth point is, is, I think, pretty fascinating. And I, I told you early on, I want to kind of focus on this. And that is the teaching that Paul gives us in verse 23. Let me just reread that verse and the next one to you. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. So what, what we're seeing here is Paul express what I think every one of us in this room has, and that is mixed emotions. He feels torn. He feels this tension. He says, my desire, so he's contrasting desire with necessity. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Hands up if that's your desire. Wouldn't it be nice just to literally be in heaven right now? That'd be great. We're in heaven. Just picture it in your mind. You're here. All of a sudden, we're all in heaven. Everything's great. There's no crying. There's no mourning. There's no weeping. There's no death. That's all gone. We're in heaven. We should desire that. We should look forward to that. But then at the same time, he says, but to remain in the flesh, verse 24, is more necessary on your account. See, he understood that the Lord uses people to minister to people. Don't be so spiritually minded that you think the Lord doesn't use people to minister to people. The Lord uses preachers and churches and faithful couples and faithful young people to minister to other people. And Paul understood that he had a stewardship to minister to others, but he, he finds himself sort of pulled in two directions. He, he'd rather be in heaven. He'd rather this all be done. He'd rather the suffering be gone. And he, he looks forward to that. But he also understands that the Lord works through faithful believers in suffering to impact other people's lives. You know, Jesus lived this way as well. Jesus, on occasion, was being threatened with death and arrest. Do you remember those? There's a few of those examples in the, in the Gospels where Jesus is preaching and all the Pharisees and the guards show up to arrest him. And what does it say? And Jesus slipped away into the crowd. It wasn't his time. He's like, yeah, this is, this is not going to go well. I'm out of here. But he didn't leave the Garden of Gethsemane, did he? when he knew they were coming for him. So he, he did his ministry to his fullest in accordance with God's will. But when the time came, 
he faced death head on and received it so that he might sacrifice himself for our sins. In Matthew chapter 10, this is another contrast. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus teaches us if they don't accept you in one town, they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So sometimes when Christians look at the circumstances they're in, it's like, yeah, we got to get out of Dodge. There's, there's no fruit being born. The people hate us. They're just going to kill us anyway. We're going to more fruitful orchards. But then other times, like with Paul, it's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I, I will allow myself to be arrested and persecuted and if necessary, put to death for Christ because I believe that will impact the people that God has called me to minister to. So these are examples of what I would call tension. We want to go to heaven, but we should probably stay for a while longer. We want to flee, but the Lord's called us to minister. Sometimes we slip away in the crowd. Other times we allow ourselves to be arrested. This is the great tension of living your life as a Christian. It's like, yeah, you know, I, I do like living. I love my church. I, I want to see my kids grow up. But at the same time, I want to be with Jesus. Which one of these is right? They're both right. We, we hold these things in tension as Christians. But ultimately, we know that God is in charge of when we go or when we're arrested or how long we're going to live. So until then, we should adopt the mindset of the apostle Paul, where he has this confidence that he will reap fruitful labor. He mentions this in verse 11 of the same passage. As he looked at the Philippian church, he's like, man, you know what? The Lord is bearing fruit here. So I am going to endure suffering for the sake of the fruit that is being born. I've thought about this a lot in light of the current circumstances. People ask me all the time, when should we get out of Dodge? Well, there's no right and wrong answer to that. If you want to move, move. If you want to stay, stay. In and of itself, there's no right or wrong as to whether you flee or remain. Although I will say this, I think no matter where you flee, you're probably only gaining two to five years. You're not gaining a generation. You're certainly not gaining a hundred years. Western civilization is teetering on the brink, if you haven't noticed. Canada might right now might be a little more nutty than the U.S., and Australia is definitely nuttier than Canada. But we're, we're kind of all more or less on the same field right now. Some people may be a little further down the field, some are a little further back. But there is this tension. And one of the things that encourages me, I'll just say publicly, I hate observing what's going on in our culture today. I can't stand the duplicity, the lies, the incompetence, the deception, the fear, the manipulation, the coercion, the compromise. In almost every institution, in churches, universities, medicine, and on and on and on. Can't stand it. In our courts. But at the same time, it's a very, very exciting time to be a Christian. Because the Lord is bearing fruit for his honor and glory. And lost people are starting to realize, uh-oh, the world's falling apart. And they're looking around for people who have hope and peace and perspective and who are willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth. And they're finding that in Christian churches and through relationships with Christian neighbors and Christian coworkers. Yeah, some of them still hate us, but they hated Christ too. But others are broken and ripe for harvest. And so Christ is doing an amazing work. And in many respects, this, this might be the most exciting time to be alive in the last 500 years. I think the Reformation would have been kind of exciting as well. But in the last 500 years or so, this is a pretty exciting time to be alive. So the, the fifth point, which Paul makes in verses 25 to 26, is he has this confidence that staying put that continuing to serve, that continuing to persevere, that living a little longer was best for the church of Jesus Christ. He chooses necessity over the desire that he has to be with the Lord. And there's two things that really charged his batteries. The first one, if you look at the language he uses here, is he looked at the progress and joy that the Philippian church had made in the faith. So he, he looked around and he watched the progress and joy that the Philippian church had made in the faith and that recharged his battery. Fruit was being born. And secondly, the vertical perspective, which is there's ample cause to give glory to Christ. Christ was being honored and glorified through his faithful people. That's what energizes me when I feel bluesy and down in the dumps. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's not great. But look at the fruit that God is bearing across the province and world. And God is being honored and glorified. Makes it worth it. At the end of the day, we're going to get to heaven anyway. So why not stick around and serve the purposes of the Lord for as long as he would have us here? We fight on in this world because we're taking others into account. Even as Christians, let's be honest, we can be a little self-protective and we should protect those around us. Should protect your family, husbands, dads, you should protect your family. But at the same time, we fight on because we take others into account. It's not just our own comfort. It's not just our own trials. The trials and tribulations that you may be experiencing right now. Remember I told you last week, last year they came after me. Now they're coming after you. They're coming after you. You probably knew that. But last year they were targeting me. Now they're targeting you. We're hearing the stories almost every day here in the church. What do I do? What do I do? My job's being threatened, et cetera. My kid's been denied access to university. What do I do? They came after me. Now they're coming after you. We all feel this tension. What do we do? Well, we remind ourselves that we will eventually win. Because Christ wins. And I'm not just talking about eschatologically winning. We can find hope that unless Jesus Christ comes back, culturally we'll win this war too. There's no question about it, folks. There's no question about it. It might take generations. It might be long after we're gone. We will win because we have history at our disposal and no culture, no civilization ever lasts more than a few hundred years under dictatorships. Doesn't, it doesn't last. It's not a livable way to live your life. So we can find hope in that. It just might mean that we're not going to see, we might see the win in our lives, but we probably won't. But we will, Lord willing, see the win for future generations or Jesus Christ will come back and that'll be the end of it all. 
Secondly, we fight, tr- we fight lies with truth. We just keep telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth. We just keep proclaiming the Lordship of Christ, preaching the gospel, pointing out lies, pointing out anything that's unjust or dehumanizing. We just keep telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth, telling the truth. Third, we bring kingdom values to bear on cultural institutions. In the old days, we used to talk about friendship evangelism, right? We were just concerned about how do I, how do I get to a point where I tell people about Jesus, sin, salvation, the cross, so they get saved. This is a good thing to do. But in an anti-Christian culture, you have to take the whole of the gospel, all the whole kingdom message, all the values of the kingdom of God and bring them to bear on all the institutions of culture. We need to bring kingdom values back into marriages, kingdom values back into families, kingdom values back into educational institutions, kingdom values back into churches. A lot of churches preach the truth, but they have a secularized worldview, a humanistic worldview. It's not a biblical worldview. We're seeing that. We're seeing that the repercussions of that. So we bring kingdom values to bear in cultural institutions. We protect one another. Now, there's been points in time we're seeing it happening. I don't want to make you any more afraid than you already might be. But what lies ahead of us, folks, is not going to be good. It's not going to be good. There's going to be some wins. But until there's revival and our culture is sort of reinvigorated or reformed, it's not going to be good. So don't, don't assume things are going to be fixed on September the 20th. We have no idea what's going to happen then. It very well might be worse. But even if there's good results then, it's not going to fix everything. We still have provincial issues, municipal issues, problems in our universities, our medical system, our churches, our seminaries. Most of them have gone woke. We have a problem. That doesn't mean they're awake, by the way. Look the word up. So we need to protect one another, just like early Christians did. They lived in communities. They bought common property together. Why? Oh, because it's the Christian thing to do. No, no. Because they had to. They were desperate. They were being persecuted. They had employment issues. They bought common properties together. They formed places of refuge. They employed one another. I think we're all realizing that one of the greatest mistakes Christian people have probably made in the last 15 years is 99.9% or whatever it might be of Christian people work for godless people. Remember a few years ago, you would have said, you know what? The best job I could ever land is a government job. I got security, good pension, a government job. Now it's the worst job you can have because you are absolutely at their whim and will to be coerced, manipulated, threatened. It's like the worst place to work for a corrupt government. We need more Christians to start businesses, to become entrepreneurs and to employ other faithful people. We need to live with less reliance on godless people. We need to balance going public versus going underground. You know, we're always 
wrestling in our fights, even with opening and closing of the church. We wanna take a principled stand, but we also wanna be pragmatic enough to realize if you're only gonna lose it all here and now, maybe we should go off site. So we're always balancing principle and practicalities. Same with your family, same with your job, same with your assets. You wanna be principled, but you don't wanna just cast your pearls before swine either. So it calls for wisdom and discretion as to how we should respond to this in a very practical way. And then finally, we pray and we look beyond this life and we find hope and freedom and joy, again, that in the end we win because Jesus wins. So this is all part of our assurance and some practical application there for you to consider. How do we act when we're suffering? Like what are, what are some practical things that we should be making sure are present in our lives? I see seven of them here in the next several verses. Verse 27 of following reads, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Underline that. Not frightened by anything in, in, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Your witness to the world is in part your fearlessness. And it's also part of their pending doom. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, we all get that, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, but also suffer for his sake. Did you realize that when you first believed that you also signed up for suffering? Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, we suffer for his sake. So here's seven things, seven actions for us to commit ourselves to do. The first one is found right at the beginning there. We're commanded to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner, regardless of the circumstances. As we fight the fights that we're fighting and we'll fight in the future, let's make sure we fight fair. Let's make sure we fight in a godly way. Let's make sure that we take stock of our own lives because you know what? Perhaps more than any other time in our lives and we're at battle for Christ and it's super obvious, the devil want, will want to tear you down. There's nothing the devil would want more right now than to embarrass Aaron Rock, to expose compromise in his life. There's nothing the devil would want to do more as you're witnessing to your coworkers trying to be faithful as to, ex as to expose the weaknesses in your life, that you're a fraud or your marriage just fell apart or they found out you're not handling your money properly or you've compromised sexually or you have a dirty mouth or whatever it might be. So in battle, more than at any other time, we need to make sure that we are conducting ourselves in a worthy manner regardless of the circumstances. So take stock of your life and keep short accounts with the Lord. Secondly, we live a worthy life regardless of who is watching. Paul's like, whether I'm there or not there, he says, let your manner of life be worthy. 
It's easy to be motivated to act a certain way when you know people are watching. Your accountability partner is going to call in an hour. But you don't need an accountability partner to be right with God. Accountability partners are good. It's good to have people that will hold you to account. But live in a manner that is worthy of God's calling upon your life, regardless of whether your mentor is present or not present. 27, encourage one another with good reports. Paul was encouraged as he heard about their faithfulness. Well, this is why we tell testimonies and stories about what God is doing in other people's lives. It's not to draw attention to the person, but it's to bless the community of faith by reminding all of us that God is doing an amazing work in us and through us and more often than not, perhaps in spite of us. So tell the stories of faithfulness and encourage one another with good reports. Maintain unity in the gospel. That's the next one, verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, one mind. This reminds me of Ephesians chapter six, where we're to take up the spiritual armor, push back against the enemy's strongholds. So we need to be unified. In our, in our church, you know, there was a little bit of division at the beginning when some folks left that didn't agree with our stance. Obviously many hundreds more have come, but we have to keep maintaining unity. We're not gonna focus on trivial issues. We're gonna keep the main things, the main things. We're at war. We need to keep the main things, the main things. This is why I've said in our church, please do debate one another politically about medical issues, about the data. Please do have those conversations. But what we're not going to do is our, in this church is be an anti-vax church or an anti-this-vax church or a pro-vax church. We're not going to do that. That's up to your conscience. We need to keep the main things, the main things, standing firm in one spirit and in one mind. 28, we're to live without fear. And notice here when he talks about fear, the scope of fearlessness is in anything. In other words, no, amount, no fear whatsoever is in bounds for the Christian. Now, fearlessness tends to rub off. So if you're a parent and you're a wise parent and you see your child is a fearful child or your child has maybe some social anxiety, you don't, you don't encourage it. Say, well, you know, I'm going to treat this child a little more tenderly. I'm just going to, I'm going to let them hide behind me, you know, in the grocery store. I'm going to let them stay home. They don't have to go to youth group. They kind of, they don't, they don't like that. I'm not going to you know, put them in situations where they might feel awkward. No. You say, you know, you have a conversation with them about it and you explain to them their worth and their value. And if they don't change, you say, cut it out, smarten up. Well, maybe that's what dads do. Moms probably take a little different approach. Okay. You might have a different approach, but I can tell you it works. And I got five examples to prove it. You have the conversations. You, you nurture. You try to understand the purposes. But at the end of the day, you say, cut it out. It's not right. It's a sin. Really? It's not what my psychiatrist said. Who cares? Your psychiatrist isn't living their life with a Christian worldview. It's a sin. 
We don't live our lives with fear, crippling anxiety, panic, super stressed out. Folks, these are all symptoms that we're not trusting in the Lord and we're not thinking about eternity. That's what it is at the end of the day. I want to make it clear as pie for you in that regard. The, 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 the fear that we're seeing in our culture makes people stupid. The fear that we're seeing in culture makes people imbalanced. The fear that we're seeing in culture makes people irrational. Do we want that in our lives? Irrationality, stupidity, myopic vision? No. So if you have a child that is uh, the kind of child that likes to hide behind you and you facilitated that, you need to cut it out as a parent. And if your church or your small group or the ministry that you serve in is marked by fear, you need to lead them out of that. As a pastor, that's one of my responsibilities. I'm not going to let you live in fear. I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to call you to be courageous. And then your courage rubs off on me as well. It's not acceptable for us to live in fear. And again, the scope of fearlessness is in anything. So if you're fearful, Cut it out. What are you fearful of? Remember we said earlier, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You're going to win regardless. What are you concerned about? You should be angry when you're the victim of injustice or when others are. You should be concerned and proactive in fighting it. But you don't need to be afraid of anything with the Lord on your side. Second part of verse 28, we can be reminded of the enemy's pending destruction in your salvation. Just a great reminder. The enemy's going to lose. And because Christ won, you will win. And then finally, we can be reminded of the reality that we're suffering for Christ. This is key. For Christ, just as past believers before us have suffered for Christ. You'll notice there's a word there. It's the word granted. It's been granted to you. That, that word means gifted. You ever thought of suffering as a gift? Usually we think of suffering as, oh, someone just showed up to my house and they brought us a meal. Or someone showed up to the house and they brought a coffee for us. So they showed up to the house and they brought a birthday present or an anniversary gift. Whatever it might be, that's a gift. If I showed up and I said, hey, I have a gift for you, some suffering, some persecution, some trial, I'd be like, that ain't no gift, no thank you. But they're spiritualized. It is a gift to suffer for Christ because of all the things that are accomplished through it. In fact, if you don't suffer, you don't mature. If you don't suffer, you don't grow up. Why would you have to have faith if everything's perfect? Why would you have to overcome doubt if everything's perfect? Why would you have to learn to persevere if everything's perfect? So suffering is a gift properly processed that helps us to grow up in our faith. So yes, we want to preach a, a gospel that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But we also want to add the rest of the story to it. Suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up his cross and follow him. And that is part and parcel of God's saving process in your life. It might get worse, but in the long term, it's going to be wonderful. And just as we've been blessed by Paul's suffering and his example, so we we have the opportunity, whether our names are remembered or not, to do for future generations what Paul has done for us, which is to stand firm, to suffer well for Christ, to be a great example, 
to set our sights on eternal things, knowing that the Lord will be glorified and our enemies will lose. At the same time, we're hoping for renewal and we're pushing for revival and we're going to do our part to try to contribute to that. But come hell or high water, we will continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe that he will bless us and encourage us and build us up for his honor and for his glory.